So, but I'm glad to see everybody. And um, in th this class, the second, our second class, uh, Forms of Meditation, where remember we're talking about the, these forms of meditation in terms of relationship and relating, and we're still in this section that is relating to self. So <clears throat> that's what we're, we'll focus on. Uh, we'll continue. We started um, with breathing and the body scans last week. And uh, as we begin to talk about meditation using perception, we need to talk about the role of language in perceiving. So the clearest work I've read on this subject is Dale Wright in his book, Philosophical Meditations on Zen Buddhism. We read this book in depth and practice quite a while ago. And this is a little bit of a long quote and a little bit academic. So please bear with me because I found it so surprising and I think it's really important. So he says, um, even before we get around to describing experience, language is already there as the form or forms that the experience has taken. Language is already embedded in the content of our experience. So this understanding of language does not make a distinction between primary experience and a subsequent interpretation that we piece together and then place upon raw data of experience. So it's a di different model altogether. Language and perception co-arise, although theoretically separable, they are indistinguishable in experience itself. How so? We always understand what we perceive immediately as whatever it appears to be. Awareness of what it is that we perceive is linguistically structured and comes to us directly in the perception itself. We perceive this directly as what it is, a book, a sound, a strange situation. These linguistically constituted images arise in the perception itself rather than subsequently. We can test this in our own experience. Try to find a perception that is not already associated with some language in the initial encounter. It is true that we do perceive some things incorrectly and that subsequently we alter the language through which that perception is understood. But both perceptions, both correct and incorrect, come to us in the form of language. Language doesn't guarantee accuracy. It just guarantees that all our perceptions will be understood within the given context of language. It's also true that we sometimes perceive some things in uncertainty, in sheer perplexity. We don't know how to understand them initially, even though we have definitely perceived them. Yet, language is already there, setting even this perception in context. We have perceived this state of affairs as perplexing, as uncertain, as mysterious, even if that is all we initially perceive in it. Language and its entirety of involvement in thought and practice functions to set up a context of significance in which perception occurs. By means of language, the world, the given, is focused and organized in advance of every encounter with entities, persons, or situations. 
assigning it a linguistic form is not something we do after seeing it. It is the very shape the seeing has already taken. Although this language refers to something extra linguistic, something beyond language, that something appears to us as the reality that it is through language. Language, therefore, is not to be located only at the level of concept and predication. It is also present at the level of perception in such a way that perception, language, and thinking are all interdependent. So this was startling to me because I always assume that there's a given world you perceive and then you wrap language around it to understand it. Um, so the idea that it's already bound up in language, even in the act of perceiving, I found quite startling. So let's talk about meditation with perception as a way of self-knowing and in relation to others. There's no such thing as naked perception as Dale Wright points out. Instead, what we observe is how rapidly our perceptions arise and are named, labeled and incorporated into our ongoing narration of self. Most of the time, this is occurring without our even being aware of it. Meditation with perception opens our awareness and makes this process visible, at least some of the time. The meditation focus, candle, flower, stone, shell, mandala, sounds, and so on, provides a kind of home base we return to over and over again when we notice we have lost that focus, our drifting in our stories. There's no judgment associated with this process, simply a willingness to return maybe thousands of times in a single sitting period until gradually our mind begins to rest in the present moment experience without too much agitation, dullness or clinging without any notion of I or me doing it. There's just hearing, seeing, feeling. This means our situation is relational. We are enmeshed with the whole world. Can you separate the sound from the hearing or the hearer? Only through language is this possible. Is the sound inside or outside or somehow in between? In traditional Buddhist teachings, hearing has these aspects, a sense organ, the ear and its associated nerves, brain centers, etc an external stimulus, a sound, and a sense consciousness, the faculty of hearing, which is a product of the contact between the first two. Each sense has a particular sense organ, external form, it contacts, and specific sense consciousness. The mind is considered a sense organ also, making its own contact with the world and with its own sense consciousness of thoughts, emotions, ideas, plans, theories, explanations, expectations, and so on. The advantages of using a sensory concentration in meditation is that it can only be experienced in present moment. And when you drift off in thoughts or stories, it is a concrete specific place to return to. It cannot be controlled or manipulated. Further, our senses are an intimate encounter the interface between ourselves and our world. They reveal our relationship both internally and externally to what is. So we'll have a little bit of an activity and this is a two-part activity. In the first part, um, I'll kind of do a little bit of guiding and the second part you'll do with a partner. 
So this is a practice with mindfulness of hearing. You want to sit upright and become mindful. Take a deep breath. Close your eyes and for the next few minutes, attend solely to your sense of hearing and the sounds that arise in it, including this voice. Begin with the sounds of your own body, your breathing, your heartbeat, whatever you can discern. Then allow your awareness to expand to sounds in the room, in the house, my voice, a refrigerator or washing machine running, a dog sighing in sleep. Maybe it's very quiet in your space. Allow your awareness to expand further to the sounds in the space outdoors, a yard, a parking lot, a neighborhood, a lawnmower down the street, two neighbors talking in front, kids on bicycles laughing. Again, it may be very quiet. And then your awareness expands much further, as far as you can hear sounds. An airplane will be nearly five miles above you. A nearby highway, traffic, the burble of a stream. Maybe you hear a siren in the distance. How far beyond your body do you think you can hear? Just rest in that spaciousness. Now return your awareness of sound to this room, my voice, your breathing. What did you observe in this little practice of concentration on hearing? We can discuss that a little bit and see 
what you discovered. And if you would like to share something, please raise your hand. I think most people know how to do that from the reactions button at the bottom of the screen. Coming back to space you're in, the body you're in. Joel. You want to unmute yourself? I think you can, right? Hi. Thank you. Um, I, I wonder about uh, Dale Wright's characterization. Mm. Uh, it seems like he's focusing on the... So there's, there's two aspects to hearing, um, which I'm constantly aware of because I have tinnitus, mm -hmm. uh, which is that I have a noise in my head mm -hmm. and I have to tease out signal from that noise. And this is, you know, key to information processing that, that, that it's a big scientific discipline. It's like there's noise all around and then you figure out what's the signal. And, um, and that what it seems to me that Dale Wright is focusing on is the moment when in perception, noise becomes signal and you perceive something and, and you give it a name at that moment or you, or it has a shape that you recognize that is, um, that, that you can draw upon your, your stored memories. And, and uh, you know, I, I find myself in meditation, um, trying to connect with my senses in a, in that that plane or that you know that that thin membrane between the perception and mostly in feeling and temperature and pressure and that kind of stuff before it turns where it's just noise it's just the stuff that's going on and before it flips over into something that i have a name for uh, and, but Dale Wright is completely refuting that model. Yeah, I, I know, but 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 it is my experience that it exists. So well, that's um, notice that you started with naming tinnitus. Again, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, 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 and um, and uh, oh, by the way, you know, in um, the Tibetan tradition, that's viewed as hearing the music of the spheres, the cosmos. Mm -hmm. So it has well, a I... positive aspect, but in any event, um, we believe, we really believe this. This is what I found so surprising, but already um, language is directing our perception. Well, that's so okay. about what he's writing about, not, you know, I thought about this for a long time because I was thinking, how is that possible? How is that possible? And I had, you know, like, Language is, is literally the medium we're swimming in. It's what's coming into our gills, you know? <laughs> I, 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 I think that there is a substrate, really, in my experience, it seems to me like there's a substrate before language kicks in that is, um, that's sensory perception. I, I, you know, anyway, that's, 
Yeah, and the only it's way a, it's a very strong experience for me. Yeah. Again, of of you know, I, I can't tell you about the noise in my head. I mean, I, what 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 was striking to me as you were as you were guiding our meditation so beautifully was you could not say. Do you hear the noise made by the grass blades growing and brushing against each other? You know, that there's a constant, there's a constant level of noise that is below the level of our perception. Uh, our sense our organs. Yeah, our right. sense organs. But that, but that are present to our sense organs. No, they're not. I mean, the blades of the sound of the blades of grass rubbing against each other, not present to our sense organs. Um, we can't pick that up normally because our ears are not sensitive enough. So well, although you can in Iowa, you can hear the corn growing if you stand in the middle of a cornfield <clears throat> in July, you can't hear it. But, but our sense organs have a narrow band of vibration that they can, um, that they can receive. Right. And <clears throat> our understanding in, um, the understanding in Buddhism is you have this sense organ, you have the stimulus outside somewhere there's a contact, and out of that arises sense consciousness. That's completely linguistically entangled. <clears throat> so the sense organ isn't um, a linguistic construct. The um, outside stimulus isn't a linguistic construct, but the meeting is a linguistic construct. Um, so that's what that's all Dale Wright's saying. These things arise together, and we can separate them in using, but we can only use language to do that, right? Separate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so can, that. Can I, uh, can I ask, is there, I mean, are there like MRI studies that could be useful in untangling this any further? I mean, he's, it seems to me he's just making an assertion. Yeah. And I think that it's, it, it's because he's a philosopher. So that's what philosophers do. <clears throat> but it struck me how, um, how much of the time we think we're just receiving in an unfiltered way sense perceptions, which are already conditioned by language, already shaped by language. Um, even the um, sense of what's important to, to look at, even the sense of what get, can be separated out from the background, mm -hmm. you know, um, right. foreground to background, um, right. even those are all linguistically constructed a man, a leaf, a flower, a plant, you know, um, and they have, they, they carry different meanings and associations that are right. us linguistic constructs, right? Which we turn into whole cultures and stuff. Yeah. Right. 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 So, um, so sometimes we think of poetry as presenting unmediated experience, but it's still wrapped in language, right? And, and language has even informed what the poet pays attention to and how they put things together. <clears throat> well, Peg, I'm sorry. I'll let this go, and I'm sorry no, that I'm taking okay. so much time. That's okay. That's okay. It's a, it's a very... let, me, let me say, for me, yeah. part of this investigation is the beauty of the 10,000 things coming forward. Yes, you know? that's that right. Is, that is that the, 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 the unfolding of the universe is happening, and it, and it is, it seems to me, available to me just you know this this in this minuscule membrane before the words kick in oh okay and i, I, I for me that seems important to be able to recognize ah. and investigate further the problem so, is you can't get there you can't get on the other side of that membrane 
Okay, I'll, I'll drop it for now. <laughs> okay, all right. So Jason. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say, um, it was so powerful to go through that exercise. Um, uh, I've been in my head, I, I, I'm taking the speed reading course and I'm reading a lot like last night and this, this morning. And um, just to, and then I remembered, oh, I have the class this morning and I sat down <clears throat> hearing you talk through that um, and, and just slowly noticing the sounds was so powerful for me. It was, it was wonderful. And um, yeah, I don't have a comment uh, on, hey, how I'm, about language at all. I just want to yeah. say it was really powerful. Yeah. But hey, like you say, we all walk around with supercomputers for a brain. So yeah, I don't know. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I think it is very powerful to get re-embodied in a way. Um, and, and, uh, and to start with a, um, what's most immediate and then allow the awareness to expand out from there. Um, as for me, has been very helpful in meditation practice. Yeah. Janiel, thanks so much for helping us get connected here. Uh, no worries. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, may I, may I share um, a little quote of someone that um, about our perspective our perception of the world. May I share with you guys? Sure. All right. Imagine an eye unruled by man-made laws of perspective, an eye unprejudiced by compositional logic, an eye which does not respond to the name of everything, but which must know each object encountered in life through an adventure of perception. How many colors are there in a field of grass to the crawling baby unaware of the color green? How many rainbows can light create for the untutored eye? How aware of variations in heat waves can that eye be? Imagine a world alive with incomprehensible objects and shimmering with an endless variety of movement and innumerable gradations of color. Imagine a world before the beginning was the word. Mm -hmm. And I always, uh, to me, I, I, I Honestly, I hold that to myself when I have disagreements with people because mm -hmm. like even when we, the, the argument is the dress blue or uh, blue and white or, you know, golden, whatever. And you realize we see the world differently. We really genuinely see the world differently and we experience it based on the language that we are given, you know, mm -hmm. like honestly people who live uh, in alaska see snow differently than we do because it's not a life and death situation for us so they you know they have multiple words to to describe snow and we just say snow sleep you know what i mean like really i i do agree that language constructs the world that we live in yeah and babies are the truest form you know experience the world in its truest form because they don't know yet no uh language right that's right <laughs> they're about to be told what things are right that was the uh the experience my sister had when she was doing cross-cultural studies of mothers and when she and she's i so i said you know you're studying japanese mothers and american mothers what's the difference because so i've told this story before the american mothers take their babies out 
And they say, that's a car, that's a man, that's a tree, that's a street. And the Japanese mothers take their babies out, they unwrap them and they say, feel, smell. It's a different way to start, right? So from the very beginning, um, babies are acculturated differently and oriented differently in terms of what their experience is. And, and it's, um, it's languaged for them differently. So I found that very uh, fascinating, you know, and I thought, well, what happens then? You know, if you grow up in that way, um, being invited to experience or being invited to um, objectify, label, name, um, it's, got to, it's got to have a, quite a different impact on your consciousness. So, all right, are you ready for part two? Okay, um, part two of this exercise. So. Um, I think Maria, you're, you're running the show here, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So here's, here's a part two. I'm going to tell you the all the whole thing about part two, and I'm going to let you sort of be time yourselves. Um, and, um, uh, because it's, it's a short, it's a short activity. So you're with a partner. So we're going to have breakout rooms in pairs, um, not including me. Um, But let me explain this first. Um, You're with a partner. Your partner is going to speak on any topic. It doesn't matter um, for one minute. If you're the listener, you simply attend to the pace, the tone of voice, the inflections, the pauses, the music of speaking without getting caught up in the content. That's all you're going to do. Just listening for the sound of the voice. This is another hearing activity, right? Then you're going to switch partners and the listener becomes the new speaker for one minute. You have to time yourselves for this. Um, and then you, the, um, the speakers and the listeners have changed. It's the same thing. The listener attends to the pace, the tone of voice, inflections, pauses, the music of speaking um, without getting caught up in the content. You may um, pick up a, an emotion tone you might, might in the speaking, for example. Uh, And then when you have completed that, talk together for a few minutes about what you noticed. What was your experience as the speaker? What was your experience as the listener? What did you notice and observe about that experience? So that's the whole activity. And then we'll come back together and share a little bit of what you discover. Does that make sense? Okay, Maria, can you set us up? I can. I've put you in a room on your own peg. So if you just join it, you'll... Okay, great. Okay. Um, how long shall I do it for? Um, I think we probably want, we have the two minutes, uh, each person speaking for one minute, a little bit of getting settled to start with. So, um, and then a little bit of discussion after. So I'd say maybe about, um, maybe 10 minutes total. Okay. There we go. And here we go. Hold on to your hats. <laughs> so as I was saying, before I muted myself, um, what did you discover? If anything, I'm pretty sure you discovered something, right? In this, uh, in this little activity. So what did you discover? Either as the speaker or as the listener. Yeah, I'll be in. I think um, 
when I did that activity with my partner, I found it hard just to stay focused on the on the hearing. I think his expression and his eyes were so expressive. I could, I mean, it's like other sense were like caught up in that activity. That's yeah. what I discovered. Yeah, we see how attuned we are to facial expressions in other in, in the people we're talking with. We get and sort of a sense of you know what's happening through that, through that visual sense. And then I realized also he started talking and he said the word learn, learning. And being a foreign language teacher, being the teacher, I heard the word learning. It's like all my, my attention was fully captivated. And I thought that was like surprising, just how one word can like resonate deeper uh, to you. Yeah. That, that was my experience. But thank you for letting us experience all this. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a kind of, um, it's a form of play, I always think. Right? Yeah. Okay, Roger. Uh, yeah, when I was uh, listening, I actually closed my eyes, um, but I, I found it extremely difficult to try to ignore the content of what was being said. And, uh, and I, you know, I did have several moments where I, I could kind of tune that out and just, just focus on the sound itself and, uh, you know, the rise and fall of, um, of the voice I was listening to. And, uh, so uh, that was that was quite interesting, uh, you know, to know that that I am so bound up in language. It's hard for me to ignore <laughs> ignore it when it's uh, you know the content of it when it's yeah. coming from my ears. So, and um, when I was speaking, I uh, I don't like to talk that much, so it was a bit of an effort to fill up a minute with uh, <laughs> whatever came to mind. So, but anyway, I. Enjoy the exercise. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it. I mean, it points to really the great complexity in human communication, the ways that we have learned to bring together so many perceptions. This is why online communication can be difficult because some of the complexity that we expect in interpersonal relationships um, is drops out of whatever medium we're in, right? So, yeah, so Jay. Yeah, um, my partner was Anne, and you know, one of the things we discussed is that I could not disconnect from the content of her <laughs> mm -hmm. minute talk. I really couldn't because one, I found it interesting, and um, I connected with it. And um, we also expressed that perhaps if she spoke a different language, a language that I did not know, then it would be easier to disconnect because I didn't understand the language. So then I would just focus on the rhythm of her speech and canter. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. 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 Our, um, our commitment to language as a way of communicating, it's so powerful. Yeah. Jason. No, I didn't tell Fabian this, but we had a really good conversation. But as soon as I heard her accent, I asked if she was from the country and she told me where she was from. But I physically, I got excited and I didn't tell her this because I had my travels and skiing in Europe, I immediately just wanted to connect with her. And I, you know, I just, it, I felt at home. Like I wanted to go into that story. 
Yeah, it's funny how evocative it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And we have an embodied reaction to that connection. You know, we're hardwired to connect with each other. So we have an embodied reaction. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Joan? Well, as Jay said, uh, you know, if it had been in a foreign language, it would be easier. And I was with Claudine and she started out in French and then she went, went, oh boy. And then she went to English. And I had the same thing Fabienne said was, you know, she said a couple of uh, words that really got my attention and I was having a hard time. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the things I noticed was a slowness and pausing and that really made me feel like she was considering what she was saying. And then a, a fast, a faster pace. And then again, that, and it was interesting, the meaning I got from just her pace. And, just the pace, right. And, uh, like when she'd have an exclamation and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's, um, it's, it's a, an amazing amount of data from a very tiny experience, right? Um, that's what I love about these little uh, practices, right? Ellen. Um, yeah, well, a, a lot that everybody said I, I experienced also, but one thing I noticed was I, it, I could not detach from the emotional content. I mean, I heard that. I heard the mm -hmm. emotional content. Mm -hmm. And um, and the other thing that uh, I think what Jay said made me think about is there's a the there's a an old lady who lives next door about my age, and she speaks only Spanish, and I speak only English, and we run each run into each other sometimes, and we like each other, and. Uh, and she knows about as much English as I know Spanish, which is not very much. We both know a few nouns. <laughs> and, and we actually have whole conversations. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so I guess that's sort of like the experience of this exercise. I, I, got the, I get the emotional content. Eventually I get the, a little bit of the direction of what we're talking about, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, Joel. I had, um, oh, that was a lovely experience for me. And, and uh, I was uh, in a breakout room with Mariam and I wanted to, connect with her right away. And I, I just, I noticed that she was wearing a Band-Aid on her arm. I got a flu shot a few days ago and I just took my Band-Aid off and earlier today. And, and uh, I asked her about that. And, she, and indeed she had gotten a flu shot too. <laughs> uh, I noticed that I, you know, I, she, she spoke first. I was trying to focus on the flow and the, the, the quality and a lot came through uh, just to kind of a, that she, what she said flowed easily. Uh, she had the, 
this kind of lilting quality in it. And, and I found myself looking up just to get visual confirmation, just to see if she were smiling while she talked or how, how she was presenting that. Because I think we do require, I, I think because humans can lie to each other, we need to get other cues as well. Uh, and, and then I, I said this to Mariam toward the end that, that I thought this was one of your uh, special trick exercises with, about <laughs> relationality mm-hmm. that um, for me, I felt a great deal of warmth toward her that came out of attending to the quality of what she's, uh, the quality of her voice and the, and the flow of language and everything. Mm. So. Yeah. I was with Joan and it was very interesting because usually I pay attention to content or to feelings of the person but then it was really a deeper experience where I was aware that she was in her head and reading the story in her head. I mean, she was discovering the story and then dreaming a minute, a second, and then going on. Uh, and I, I, could, I could see the depth of the other person more than I can see it usually in a, in a normal relationship. And that's what I wanted to share. Mm. Yeah, that is so interesting. Mm. We do tend to uh, fasten on the content um, and not necessarily on what is this conversation revealing about uh, our coming closer or farther apart, right? Like the relationality, the mutuality in the, in the relationship. Then Maria. Sorry, I'm gonna go slow there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I loved it. I loved the exercise. It was kind of uh, I really noticed that with the two different people that that were in my group, and um, I noticed that they had different patterns to their talking, different rhythms, and the way they they kind of it was like a different tune, you know. They you know, and how how long they paused in between each thing they said, and. And it was it was lovely to just be able to kind of really feel like go past the language and just feel like in one I kind of felt and one of the people I felt a kind of an ang- an anxiousness a nervousness that that made me feel really close and endeared to the person you know I could really feel it strongly and then the other person I could feel a sense of excitement and a like you know a kind of a, a faster kind of beat if you like to to what they were saying and to kind of really relate to that excitement and that that faster beat and then the other person the kind of sensitivity and and uh, a kind of a feeling like a real kind of care coming from me mm-hmm. and so it was really kind of um lovely really just to feel that bit closer to those people to go beyond what they were saying and just to really notice the patterns and the the feelings and the you know what was being conveyed that isn't language that isn't that's beyond that it's hard for us to allow ourselves that um, experience, I think, uh, because we're so bound up in content and we're so bound up in uh, the reflection of ourselves we're getting from the other person. 
it's such a it's such a hardwired thing really yeah and always ready to kind of like a responsibility to have to respond so kind of paying real attention to the content when sometimes the content is only 10 percent of, of everything that the person's conveying that's right that's right what they're really conveying is the process of relating mm. and so sometimes we can allow ourselves to focus on what is this process of relating um, and are we um, are we able to find some freedom in that process? And that's a big challenge in our practice. Yeah, so good, yeah. And sometimes relieving ourselves of the necessity of responding is what gives us that freedom, a little bit of freedom. So Mehdi, we'll come back to you, Joel, in a minute. You're muted, Mehdi. Oh, okay. You're, you're muted go. now, yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was a beautiful experience with Richie. He was in Scotland mm -hmm. in his room and I was seeing the, his paintings in the background. Mm -hmm. And the, that was very interesting. I didn't know him. And then I, I, we exchanged, you know, I, I showed him some, my, some of my favorite, you know, Hopper's paintings and all that. So, uh, we talked about, you know, perception, sensa sensations, and there was a seagull outside that I could hear the voice, uh, and he was in his room, but seagulls I could hear, and it reminded me of my prior experience. Anyway, the perception was nice, the emotion was beautiful. Uh, then uh, I was really interested into what is the mind, you know, the the concept of mind within this context. And the, you know, I, I think there are some levels of organization perhaps in, in our, you know, perceptions and, you know, understanding and then meaning and values. Um, they were all just mixing together and I was just, enjoying it, but the, the freedom that you are speaking, mm. um, you know, I have been, you know, studying and practicing and it's just like a humorous, you know, interaction between self and other. And mm. it can take so many shapes and, you know, that in, impermanence. And I mean, they all, you know, I have been experiencing it in recently and you know this is a fascinating experience and i i can relate to the beauty of whatever is and or is not perhaps <laughs> at the same time uh, it's just a fascinating process and I'm, I'm just saying that it is happening it's a like a daily type and if i have my mind perhaps again i'm using the mind and it is, it has been very helpful. And uh, I just want some, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about this a lot because, um, you know, sometimes when we do breath meditation, uh, more contemplation of the breath or breathing, we end up in a kind of a struggle. Um, and so the, 
Meditation on hearing, for example, you can't control your hearing. What comes in, comes in. Um, so I was thinking about in, in relational terms, hearing when you're with another is quite different from listening. So when we listen with only half our attention, perhaps with the other half thinking about our response, planning dinner or looking at our phone, we're barely hearing anything. And I think there's so much redundancy in human communication because of that because of the, um, what I would call inefficiency of our listening. Um, so in relational practice, we allow ourselves to rest in simply hearing the other or others without any other intention or distraction. So you might very well be attending to the content or you might be attending to the tone of voice or you might be attending to the speed or pace of the way the person's speaking, but the experience of being heard in this way is profoundly nourishing. And it's profoundly nourishing to hear another in this way. So you can do little experiments in mindfulness of hearing when you're in a conversation, as well as when you're in sitting in meditation and see what you can discover when you're really hearing the other uh, and not um, you know, uh, occupying your mind with anything else. So a big part of our practice always is paying attention to what you're paying attention to, right? Um, so there are plenty of other activities that, um, that are possible um, and I'm not going to engage you in them because we will run out of time, but, uh, but you can do this with a partner. You can look at the partner's face as if you are a painter and you're only looking at colors and, sh and shadows and um, the shapes that they reveal as a painter would do. Um, and this again, drops a lot of the content out and allows us to just be with the other person uh, and without expectations or without any ideas. Another um, sort of favorite practice is uh, some kind of object contemplation. It could be a candle flame, a flower, a stick of incense, a pebble, a leaf, a shell. And one form of this kind of object contemplation is to draw a simple object very, very slowly. Uh, so you're, you're tracing its contours very precisely, very, very slowly. It should take at least 20 minutes if you're going slowly enough. So the purpose isn't to draw an artistic likeness of the object, but simply to engage in this activity of perception, looking closely at the surface. Um, our eyes are pretty quick to scan things and the mind is pretty quick to name them. So this exercise slows our perception down and steps beyond language and embodied practice. You're just like in this flow of this minute drawing of a shell, a flower that takes you down into a very meditative, simple space. And then there's a, a um, so much of our cognition comes out of our visual sphere. Our visual sense is huge. Um, and some experts estimate as much as 80% uh, of what we perceive. Um, and so, um, so always, there's always the potential for some kind of visual contemplation, but a particular uh, Buddhist form of visual contemplation is the mandala. Um, so uh, mandalas are, complex images that are rich with meanings and they're intended as objects for meditation and reflection. They're generally kind of stupefying at first. They're filled with layers, geometric forms, 
ornate patterns, baffling figures, animals, people, supernatural beings, and writhing with activity. So our minds at first try to make sense of it logically, but we cannot. Mandalas are maps of holy universes, internal and external. So I'll give you an example. I'll share, share a, um, a visual image with you. Um, this is the Kala Chakra mandala. It's very, very famous in Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and you can see there are many different layers from the, uh, from the middle uh, radiating out. And there are all kinds of figures. And this is very symbolic. This is a very symbolic um, mandala. So I put up in the handouts on the class page, this image, plus a kind of, there's also a, a kind of description of what it contains or what its meanings are. Uh, but there's also, I also put up instructions for making your own mandala if you'd like to make one for yourself as a kind of visual practice. Um, but uh, as they draw us in, we can only really allow the images to wash over us like koans, they resist our interpretations and explanations and they insist on being met directly. We name and label a pig, a man, a circle, a level, until we wear a waves, we wear out grasping for meaning. Uh, even the many explanations of the design of a mandala cannot ultimately satisfy us. How does it help to know that this circle represents the 12 fold chain of dependent origination? But these are, were teaching vehicles and ways also of preserving the, the Buddha's teachings um, in the same way that the sutras were. So while these complex images are the opposite of the simplicity of a candle flame, a flower, or a stone, we soon discover the same exhaustion of our cognitive energies in the practice of simply attending. <clears throat> Mandalas are not the work of solitary artists, but the product of collective imagination and usually production. Monks working on a sand mandala gather around the perimeter, maneuvering their tiny funnels filled with colored sands to create the fine lines, precise patterns, and images together. I witnessed this when I was in San Diego, and I was just staggered by the, the incredible detail in these uh, sand mandalas and the labor of the monks. And while I was there, you could get right up to it, and you could look right at it. Um, while they were working on it, and they were so joyful. But while I was there, a woman came to view it, and as she turned, her handbag brushed about a third of it off onto the ground. <laughs> and the monks laughed. <laughs> they had spent literally weeks and weeks and weeks uh, up to that point. So in any event, um, as we engage with the mandala, we're drawn into this extraordinary visualization of the Buddha and the long lineage of teachings and teachers. Um, the collective imagination of the Sangha unfolding over thousands of years and the embodied immediacy of our presence with it. So ultimately, we're compelled to surrender our conceptions and logical reasoning to simply rest in wonder. So I put these handouts up for you um, and you can uh, download them, you can print them if you want to and explore them. Um, I hope you'll explore this concentration practice of sensory perception more generally, which can be grounding, very grounding when we're scattered or agitated. It returns our awareness to our embodied presence and provides the experience of finding our home in the world. Having a focus for meditation is helpful, 
especially when beginning a meditation practice, whether in the early months or years of practice, the first few minutes of zazen, or the first period of an intensive. It's also helpful when we're suffering from pain or distress. Awareness of our sensory experience is awareness of our aliveness in the world. It's a complement to our open awareness practice, which we will be discussing toward the end of the course. Most of all, it can be helpful in our relationships with others, keeping us in the present moment of relating by anchoring our awareness in our senses. So um, what, we're, what are we actually seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, thinking? In this way, we can be fully present for ourselves and for others. So think about that. If you're, you're probably going to go have lunch after this or some meal or another after this, and you can think about bringing that awareness of sensory perception, the visual field, aromas, tastes, um, noticing, you know, all of these things, the shape you cut something um, and the expansion of the negative space as you continue to eat a meal. Um, I think this is a very good contemplation because it's quite concrete again, it's quite embodied, brings you into present moment experience and how often we eat distracted on the run, thinking about something else, watching television, reading a book, talking to somebody and um, not really um, experiencing all of the sensory detail that's available to us. And it's the same in our relationships with other people and also our relationship with ourselves. So the more we're grounded, the more we can really feel um, at ease in any situation, even those situations which are most fraught. If we're returning to sensory experience, the, the sensation of our feet on the floor, the um, air temperature in the room, uh, the, the tactile senses, um, these can all be very orienting uh, when we're engaged with other people. And we can also include them in, that, uh, in the, those perceptions. Of course, as, as everybody pointed out, it's only natural um, to notice uh, the visual field when you're with someone, right? The facial expressions, do they look away? Do they seem bored? Um, uh, and it has a huge impact on our sense of being heard, of being felt, of being understood. So, um, so these are all things that we can not only use in our meditation practice, but also in our everyday lives as we are, whatever, washing the dishes or petting a dog or taking a little walk, uh, driving in traffic. It, the more we can be grounded in, these, um, in the sense fields, uh, the more present we are. Um, okay, Jay? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I was gonna ask, how many people actually feel comfortable having someone stare you in the eye while you're talking? Most people feel very uncomfortable with that. I've tried it. <laughs> They're like, wait, why are you looking at me like that? Yeah. Most of us very uncomfortable with it. Yeah. So th that again is very accultured. So different cultures have different um, meanings associated with that. And also I found it's also gendered. So we have a little activity I used to do with my students in classes in pairs where you sit facing each other and you close your eyes and you're gonna just open them periodically and take a snapshot and close them again, just a snapshot of the person. 
And the other person's gonna be doing the same thing. So sometimes when you look at them, their eyes are open. Sometimes when you look at them, their eyes are closed. So I found it was a very different experience if it was two women or if it was two men, or if it was a man and a woman. If it was two men, they almost invariably ended up laughing. And what one of the students explained to me was, when a guy looks at another guy, that's either a threat or some kind of a come up. And I, that totally hadn't occurred to me, of course, you know, it was not my experience. But it's interesting how those meanings, you know, students had all kinds of meanings that were associated with just the act of opening their eyes, looking at another person, closing their eyes. A huge amount of data, just huge. I thought she was judging me, you know, like, you know, just an incredible amount of data that people were getting from these tiny, tiny little snapshots. So it's a, a very interesting practice. Um, the other one that we had students do was um, sitting facing each other and they're um, almost not touching, but knee to knee, you know, like close together. And one of them is going to be um, uh, an observer and a controller, and one of them is going to be a mover. So the controller, um, it, whenever they open their eyes, the person that's the mover moves slightly closer to them, just leaning slightly closer. When they close their eyes, the person stops. Open your eyes, the person continues moving until they get to a certain point and the person will put up their hand and that puts them into reverse. So when they open their eyes, they start moving away. They start moving away. And it's, a, um, it's very, very interesting how people viewed those roles just from that perception of someone coming closer, someone moving away. You know, like some students would, think, would be thinking, don't go away, you know? <laughs> and others, you know, there were students who thought that by moving forward, they were invading the other person's space and the other person was actually welcoming that. Um, so it was very interesting just from that simple, simple exercise, how people um, got so much information from just that perception, someone coming closer, someone moving farther away. So some of those little activities are, um, are fun to experiment with because different people have completely different responses. I'd have people say, you know, in when I do right use of power training, they'd say, well, I've done this exercise before, so maybe I shouldn't do it. I'd say, do it again. Every single time it's different. Yeah. Every single, with every single partner, it's different. Yeah. So I like these little embodied exercises because there's such a, a, um, an important teaching that isn't really didactic. You know, it's just, you're just, you discover it in your felt sense, in your, in your body. Now, it's not an intellectual understanding, as many of you experienced, you know, with the, even just the hearing exercise. So, yeah, so um, we're almost at the end of our time. To, um, we are at the end of our time. Are there any last minute questions? Hopefully next week I can actually get connected more rapidly. I can figure out what's going on, but we'll have to think about that. No, no last minute questions. All right. Um, so enjoy your week and we'll come back next week for class three. All right. Thank you. Hi, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye, everybody.